searching for a fortress built by people who escaped slavery. Matthew Hudson On a rainy morning in March, George Dawes Green, a 70-year-old novelist and the founder of the storytelling nonprofit The Moth, arrived at Millstone Landing, about 20 miles north of Savannah, Georgia, on the South Carolina side of the Savannah River. He and 13 others were preparing to look for remnants of a secret fortress built in the 1780s by Maroons, people who'd escaped slavery to live in the wilderness. The term derives from the Spanish word cimarron, which means unruly or fierce. Maroons existed in the South from the beginning of slavery and, according to historical accounts, the population of this encampment, around a hundred, dwarfed that of any other known group. The fortress was said to have been uniquely defended, with a wall, weapons, and sentries, its residents had lived there and in another nearby camp for years until white militias finally found the sites and burned them to the ground. Green had first read about the fortress decades ago, last year, he published, The Kingdoms of Savannah, a thriller involving a search for its ruins. Early in writing the book, he began reaching out to scholars to turn the fictional search into a real one. Now archaeologists, historians, and others were donning rain gear and wrestling with tall snake-proof boots in a parking lot by the Savannah River. Rick Kanaski, a Gregotied archaeologist at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which manages the Savannah National Wildlife Refuge, was part of the expedition. He warned that we were unlikely to find the fortress itself. Instead, he said, we'll get a sense of place, an idea of what the Maroons' life had been like. Archaeology is slow work, Kanaski went on, eventually, we'll be able to tell some life stories about these individuals who were essentially creating their own community and reclaiming their own individuality and their own personhood and their own society, so to speak. But the first step was to get the lay of the land. We strapped on life jackets, climbed onto a boat, and headed north. South Carolina was on the east bank and Georgia on the west, the temperature was in the 50s, and gray clouds spat water in our faces. Brown water sprayed up behind the motors. We had a rough idea of where we were going. Running parallel to the river, about a mile to its west, was Bear Creek, historical documents indicated that the fortress had been near the creek and about two miles north from a lower fork. Green's research had pointed him toward a region just south of where Bear Creek jutted east and then west, creating a thumb-shaped area of land. His target zone covered maybe 20 acres. If the ground were dry, the area would be about 15 minutes' walk from shore. But we soon encountered a small, winding creek that cut through the lush vegetation. We sloshed across, walked for another few minutes, then hit another creek. This one was way steep, and we halted at the impasse. I was shivering, and my fingers had turned blue from the damp and cold. If it were warmer, I knew, we'd be getting eaten alive by mosquitoes. This actually helps as part of their defense, Kanaski said, of the forbidding landscape. I imagined living on this land for years, with scant supplies. What had life been like for the Maroons? How had they survived? How had they understood their own story? Answers to these questions had been lost, like the fortress, in the swamp. Although Maroons existed wherever slavery did, they are often left out of U.S. history curricula. In her book, Slavery's Exiles, The Story of the American Maroons, from 2014, Sylvian A. Duff, a historian and visiting scholar at Brown University, offers several explanations for this. 
American maroon communities weren't as large as their counterparts in Central and South America, she writes, and they didn't wage wars against enslavers, their settlements weren't well documented, and, whereas everyone has heard of the Underground Railroad, Maroonage lacked the high drama of the escape to the North. Duff also argues that the Maroons' narrative of autonomous survival without benevolent white involvement probably lacked mass appeal. Nonetheless, Maroons lived at extremes. They faced the constant risk of capture, especially while sneaking supplies from plantations. Some Maroons built underground dens and lived in them for years, occasionally even filling them with furniture and stoves, children were born and raised in darkness. While reading archival documents, I found examples of caves all over the South, Doof told me. It's just mind-boggling that that kind of life could exist. If Maroons returned or were caught, Doof writes, severe whippings were the mildest punishments. They could be branded, castrated, dismembered, or executed. After hanging, their bodies might be decapitated, quartered, and displayed. Doof dedicates a chapter of her book to the Maroons of Bear Creek. A 2009 volume called Maroon Communities in South Carolina, edited by the historian Timothy James Lockley, also contains many original records from the period. The Bear Creek Maroons built their first settlement around 1780, at the southern end of the waterway. In 1786, the group swelled in size, and their plantation raids attracted negative attention. That October, the grand jury of Chatham County complained that large gangs of runaway Negroes are allowed to remain quietly within a short distance of this town. Militia members located the Maroons and attacked them. Several people on each side were injured, and the militiamen, low on ammunition, retreated. They returned with more men that evening, but were ambushed and fled. James Jackson, a Revolutionary War hero and future governor of Georgia, took over the effort to capture or kill the Maroons. A few days later, he brought in fresh soldiers, but by then the Maroons had evacuated. He destroyed what they'd left behind, including houses, about 15 boats, and four acres of rice. That December, Jackson wrote to the governor of South Carolina, Thomas Pinckney, Your Excellency may have heard of the daring banditti of slaves, who some weeks since, attacked two of my detachments, and were at last with difficulty dislodged from their camp. He warned that some Maroons had relocated to South Carolina, across the river, where they were again raiding plantations for supplies. Video from The New Yorker the following March, Pinckney authorized a plantation owner to hire up to a hundred Minutemen, volunteer soldiers who were ready on short notice, for a month-long search. He sent supplies and offered bonuses of £10 per maroon caught dead or alive. He also asked an associate to hire 20 members of the Catawba tribe, who knew the land and were skilled trackers, to join the search, offering the same reward. The Maroons, meanwhile, had regrouped at a new location, two miles north of the old one, and fortified it. On April 21, 1787, a group of Maroons went out in boats, planning to collect family members and others who wanted to join them from a nearby plantation. They ran into a group of Minutemen, and several Maroons were shot and killed. The militiamen now knew of the encampment's general location, even so, it took them two more weeks to locate it in the swamp. Finally, on the morning of May 6, they killed a sentry and rushed through an opening in the fortress's defensive wall. 
The Maroons fired a few shots before running away, leaving behind an enclosed area that covered 17 acres and contained rice and potato fields and 21 houses. The attackers chased the Maroons for two miles, killing six of them, then burned down the camp and reported their victory. Later, the Charleston Morning Post would describe how the Maroons had got seated and strongly fortified in the midst of an almost impenetrable swamp. Running away from a fight was the best strategy, Duff said. People say that's not what heroes do, but it is. The goal of the Maroons was to stay alive. Their leader, who went by the names Sharper and Captain Kajo, and his wife, Nancy, were among a group that escaped and eventually made its way to Florida. But the second-in-command, a man called Captain Lewis, was captured shortly after the raid and tried, in Savannah, for the murder of a white man whom he had brought back to the settlement before it was discovered. He was sentenced to be hanged and to have his head displayed on a pole. Some audiences cheered for the Maroons' defeat, but others celebrated their success. In an editorial, the Massachusetts Sentinel admired those brave and hardy sons of Africa who seem wisely to prefer a precarious existence, in freedom, on the barren heath, to the chains of their oppressors, whose avarice, cruelty and barbarism increases with their wealth. The article concluded. The spirit of liberty they inherit appears unconquerable. Heaven grant it may be invincible. Green is an eighth-generation Savannahian, and the kingdoms of Savannah grew out of stories about the region that he'd heard as a child. The Gothic tales often mixed horror with glamour. Once, an elderly relative described a group of escaped enslaved people who'd established a camp on an island in the Savannah River, they'd come upon a pirate ship run aground, its occupants all drowned, and had found gold inside, which they'd taken and buried. Green remembered the story in the early 2000s when a friend who was a local professor and historian of Savannah also mentioned a group of escaped enslaved people who had lived in the wilderness. He went to the Georgia Historical Society and pored over the archives. Along with his brother, an archaeologist who studied the Taino people of the Caribbean, he borrowed a canoe and spent a day paddling through the creeks and woods near where the fortress might have been. They didn't find anything. The Kingdoms of Savannah, which Green wrote about two decades later, centers on the disappearance of Matilda Stone, an archaeologist studying the fortress site. The novel is about a panoply of historical injustices, Green told me, not just slavery but corrupt police, abuse of labor practices, and pollution. At one point in the story, a member of an old Savannah family hoping to solve the kidnapping case is at the library browsing books about Savannah's history. I mean that's what these books are all about, someone says. The crimes of Savannah. Every book in here. They're all just the sickest crime stories you can imagine. The novel is sort of a tapestry of stories, which are all based on reality, Green said. He explained that he'd been inspired in part by Lawrence Durrell's The Alexandria Quartet, a tetralogy of novels set around the time of the Second World War which is about folks wandering around Alexandria, Egypt, and all of the little ethnic enclaves, and the incredible corruption that rules everything, and how every little enclave is making deals constantly just to survive, Green said. Last fall, after the publication of The Kingdoms of Savannah, Green organized two events with Duff and Paul Presley, a historian writing a book about people who had escaped from slavery. The three soon started assembling a group to search for the fortress. 
Historians like me, even public historians, you tell stories, and they just hang in the air, and they don't go any place except for the 25 people that you talk to, Presley told me. In talking to George, I realized, this man knows how to bring this into the public arena. A novel is the way you can bring it. Duff concurred, there are more people who read fiction than there are people who read academic books. The day before the swamp trek, I spoke with Daniel Sayers, a historical anthropologist at American University who has spent years exploring maroon history in the Great Dismal Swamp in Virginia and North Carolina and had agreed to join the search party. I asked him how he'd proceed once we were out in the wilderness. What would he look for, specifically? I'll probably rely on my spidey sense, wow, people were here, Sayers said. His voice was gruff from years of smoking cigarettes and chewing tobacco, he wore jeans, a torn t-shirt, and an Olympia beer trucker hat. It would be great to find an artifact, he went on, but that was unlikely, he would be satisfied with vibes. The site would probably be on slightly high and dry ground, he thought. I'm hoping the place speaks to me, he said. Savannah, along with other southern cities, is home to many macabre tours that mix history and spiritualism. In Tales from the Haunted South, Dark Tourism and Memories of Slavery from the Civil War Era, Taya Miles, a historian at Harvard, writes that, according to popular lore and common knowledge alike, ghosts dwell in places stained by unresolved conflict, places marked by pain, violence, betrayal, suffering, and ugly death. That night, before dinner, I asked Esther Blessing, Green's wife, if we might go on one. She described the tours as this weird Tarantino meets gone with the wind clickbaity bullshit about enslaved people that isn't even real. They're telling these fake stories about history, she went on, her voice rising. Why are they doing that when stories like this are there? In the swamp, we noticed a spot where the creek seemed to be shallower and decided to try our luck crossing there but we arrived only at another deep creek. It looks like what we have is a whole series of dendritic creeks that are interlacing with this landscape that's not well shown on any of the USGS topographical sheets," Kanaski said. In other words, we were in a watery maze. Where we're standing might also have been where a small encampment of maroons was, Sayers ventured. This is a maroon landscape we're in already. It was a view that offered some consolation. Dion Hoskins-Brown, a government marine scientist who teaches at Savannah State University and is the chair of the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor Commission, spoke up. Is it just the terrain that allowed the community to persist? She asked. I mean, it's given us a fit today. Even militia, who are trained to carry their guns and shoot people and track them down, they're kind of afraid to go in, Sayers said. This is a big deal to just even experience this place, he went on. We're in the heart of resistance in Moronage. Green and a companion returned from a scouting mission. They'd followed the creek in one direction and found no easy way to cross, they wanted to try in the other direction, but Kanaski proposed coming back another day, when the ground was dry. While they debated, Hermina Glasshill, a black activist and historian wearing pink-fringed boots and a red flower in her hair, removed a Congolese vessel, an engraved wooden chalice, from her bag and filled it with distilled water. Before we proceed, can we just pour libations right now, since we have identified that this is the terrain of that maroon community? She said, building on Sayers's hopeful notion. 
Glasshill stood and led us in a round of Kumbaya, Kumbaya here, my lord, an African-American spiritual, first recorded in that part of Georgia. Libations is about honoring the ancestors, honoring those who have come before us, she said. We want to give thanks to those brave, courageous souls who thought that taking the risk for freedom and the wildness of this place was more safe than staying on dry land. She started pouring out some water. To the men, to the women, to the children, who made this place home, she said. Ash. Ash, we responded. To those of us who are seeking the truth, she went on. Ash. Ash, we said. To those who are going to come. Ash. Ash. The group conversation continued and eventually turned to an incident known as the Weeping Time. On March 2nd and 3rd, 1859, a plantation owner sold more than 400 people, splitting up many families in what would be the second largest slave auction in U.S. history. He undertook the sale to cover his gambling debts and held it at a racetrack. The Weeping Time, Presley said, was probably the most well-known event in the area's black history. But the Maroon community offered a story of black resistance, he said. This is something to celebrate. And I just hope that George's project can eventually replace it, or at least be alongside that story and develop a feeling of pride. Hoskins Brown, the Marine scientist, sat nearby on a log. The people of the Gullah Geechee community, for whom she advocates, are descended from enslaved people and maintain elements of West and Central African culture. I asked whether, as a black scientist and community advocate, she thought it was odd that I was putting the efforts of Green, a white man, at the center of my article. That's a good question, she said. It's his humanity that's driving him to another human story. That's not racial. She went on, it's an unfortunate reality that sometimes it's white curiosity that gets stories of people of color told. So white curiosity is a tool. After half an hour, we decided to make another attempt at the fortress. We crossed more creeks before hitting the biggest expanse of water yet. Seeing this, Kanaski called it a day, and we began the return trip to the boat. We got into our life jackets again and motored south, back to Millstone Landing. A couple of hours later, part of the group gathered at Tubby's tank house and discussed next steps. Presley said he'd look at old deed books held in Atlanta. Green and others talked about surveying the area using LIDAR, a technology that creates precise elevation maps that can reveal hints of old or buried structures. If a fortress was eventually pinpointed, long-term excavations could take months or years. All of this would cost money. Presley said he'd like to add something about Bear Creek Fortress to history curricula. It's a great story, he said. This is a Navy SEAL kind of thing, but in reverse. At one point, I asked Green if he was disappointed in the day's outcome, we hadn't even made it to the area he'd wanted to search. I'm not really disappointed, he said. I'm 95% certain that there is high ground out there and that there will be an area that we will look at and say, this is a real camp. He grew reflective. I'm in some way a little glad that it doesn't reveal itself right away. I like the fact that it's been 235 years and it doesn't necessarily wish to be found. Diamond Suit